You're listening to the Inbound Logistics Podcast with today's guest, Jeremy Hanks, founder and CEO of Disco. Today's retailers and suppliers face ever-increasing challenges to remain effective in the face of the unstoppable force of e-commerce. To combat the likes of Amazon, businesses need to embrace new technologies and adopt innovative strategies or deal with the prospect of closing their doors for good. Jeremy Hanks, CEO of Disco, offers some insights for suppliers and explains why doing a deal with the devil doesn't have to be as scary as it sounds. Joining me today is Jeremy Hanks, founder and CEO of Disco. Jeremy, thank you for taking some time out to chat with us today. Yeah, happy to happy to talk. Jeremy, can you give us a little bit of uh, information on you and your entry into the industry in general and maybe a little bit about Disco? Yeah, so um, I grew up on a farm in Idaho, and by starting with that doesn't mean it's going to take 45 minutes. But I, I say that mostly because, um, <laughs> you know, in Idaho, I, I had uh, – had an acquaintance, uh, this family, the Masoners, they would, they would buy closeout skis direct from manufacturers. They would do that in the springtime, you know, this time of year. And they would, uh, you know, they'd buy thousands of pairs of skis from K2, Rosignol, um, you know, Solomon, and, and then over, you know, in their garage over the summer, they'd, they'd mount bindings, et cetera. And then in the fall, they would go to, uh, to ski swaps all, all over the Western United States by, you know, stuffing skis into these, big garbage pail, you know, garbage, you know, wheeled garbage pails and, and then put them in the back of their horse trailer. And uh, a couple of friends of mine knew of, of this. And, and, you know, we were in, in college in Utah and we said, we could do that online. You know, we could, we could do a ski swap on the internet. Um, so we started this company in 1998 called Ski Trade and it, it turned into GearTrade.com. And we were this closeout marketplace for specialty retailers. You know, it was the dot-com boom and bust. It didn't go like we had all hoped. And right at the end of that, we came across a company uh, in Salt Lake City uh, that was a wholesale distributor in that outdoor recreation vertical called Liberty Mountain. And they said, closeouts, yes, they are a problem, but we really need help with drop shipping. You know, at the time, you had a lot of these big peer play retailers, um, backcountry.com and Planet Outdoors and Alltrek, and most of which are not here anymore. Um, and, and they were pushing this idea of drop shipping. You know, I, I want virtual product. I want this distributed product supply. And said, hey, that's interesting. So that turned into this second company um, we did for nine years. Uh, it was called Doba, where we were this virtual distributor and, and product broker with about a thousand suppliers, you know, manufacturers and distributors that we were working with, and a two million SKU aggregated catalog. And learned a lot about the the challenges of of the changing business models in the supply chain. Learned a lot about the the limitations of the existing technology solutions in the supply chain because we we looked at that many times over those nine years so that we didn't have to build technology. And then that all culminated kind of you know like five years ago where we said, hey, we 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 know a lot. We've built some technology. Let's go build this uh, tech company to do uh, software for dropshipping for retailers um, and and so that's that's our current company disco and we we've continued to learn and 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 uh, you know spent spent a lot of time for the first three years doing doing things the old way and in the last couple of years we think we've come up with a different approach and and have started to see some pretty interesting in results from that so uh, that's that's my story of getting into this this industry I, I blame the, the growing up on the farm because that's where I met the masoners and, and had this idea that turned into this uh, 15, 16 year kind of you know journey into the into this world. 
It's been a long time since those horse cart days. I'm sure e-commerce and online retail has changed quite a bit since then. It's certainly changed how businesses run things as a result. What's the biggest change that you've observed since those early online retail days? Um, I, I think the way that I would answer that question is that, that there have been some huge changes, but the thing that strikes me is the fact that that in the business-to-business side of of this whole whole world, um, the supply chain, what, what's striking is actually the lack of change. Um, so if you think of the e-commerce, you know, when we first were getting started, this was pretty new. It, you know, maybe four or five years um, it had been going. It started with that virtual storefront. Um, right when we were, were doing this, you know, things like paid search were being invented um, by by GoTo.com, uh, you know, and, and so this search kind of, you know, uh, wave was a huge disruption. And then, you know, further on you had social, you have mobile, you know, there's been huge kind of big, big tsunami waves of, of change and disruption on the business to consumer piece of commerce, um, particularly e-commerce and, and the internet and the supply chain kind of has the same that it's always been for decades. And, and so I think to kind of, you know, there, there are big changes in e-commerce, but it's almost the lack of change on one half of the equation, right? Like match supply to demand. And, you know, so much has changed on the demand side. Um, right. And companies are, I think, really scrambling to keep up and, and, and struggling. But um, I kind of feel that there, the inability for the for them and or, you know, the industry and the world to have that same type of disruption on the supply side is actually one of the main reasons why they struggle so much to, to try to adapt and change like they are today. Let's talk about that struggle. We, we get news reports every other day about big chains having to shut stores down all across the country. What are the challenges that these stores have to deal with just to keep up? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the challenges is the world is becoming more and more virtual. What we help with, dropshipping, you know, you can call it virtual inventory, right? It's, it's virtual not because it's made of ones and zeros, but because, you know, that the, the retailer doesn't doesn't feel it and touch it. And, and so, you know, all of this virtualization and these trends kind of equal data and a huge increase in data and information. And so you've got this legacy universe of systems, technologies, and it's super difficult for those to adapt and, and change fast enough to, to, you know, to deal with this virtualization, this data. To a degree, stores are the same, you know, Physical stores have become virtualized with with the dot com you know element of of the of the storefront that has played out in the last twenty plus years, um, and so a lot of that virtualization you know conflicts with the physical world. And so back to your you know question on stores is how do you how do you change the walls of a store when when you realize that your store should have been smaller because you you need mm-hmm. less products there, um, more of an experience. You don't need the back room you know the back stock area because you can connected into your e-commerce fulfillment warehouses, or you can connect it into upstream uh, suppliers through something like dropshipping, but you, you can't change walls. And so they, they don't move, you know, very fast. And, and, and especially when you struggle changing software, you know, let alone changing kind of that physical world. So I, I think, you know, a lot of the, the doom and gloom that, that, that people see um, and, and talk about, you know, it, it's just the, a changing world, and sometimes things are inflexible and can't change, and so then those are the things that go away. Um, but I think then it's a mistake to extrapolate that to everything's going to go away. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's going to change to that kind of ultimate element where where there are no more stores or anything like that. You know, because you can you can find lots of examples where 
it goes the other way where you have pure pure play, you know, e- e-commerce uh, brands um, that are opening stores, right? And they talk about we're going to open lots of stores. And so yeah, I think, you know, what's, what's to be expected is there are still going to be a lot of casualties in, in these these changes, but there's also going to be a lot of new things and there's a lot of opportunity if, if companies can understand like what they do that's unique and can retrench around that. And if having physical presence somewhere in, in the world to, to show products or sell products is part of your uniqueness, you know, then double down on it, right. Um, and do the thing that the, uh, that others can't, that don't have that. So that's, that's some thoughts I have about that. So on the drop shipping side of things, What's the difference between, say, a curated, less limited aisle approach versus, say, an endless aisle? Yeah, so, you know, we, we've kind of started, I started using this term, you know, this less limited aisle. Uh, you know, that's, I, I don't know if others use that, an endless aisle, um, you know, inventory-free retail. You know, there's some of these terms. And I think they, they are, you know, one, they sound super utopian, um, which is why they're compelling, but they also are not, like, very much tied to the realm of, of reality, you know, an endless aisle, infinite product. Um, and, and the thought that, that, you know, that we've seen and, and, the, and the things that we're seeing is that, you know, you have to have a, a strategy about why do you want to expand product assortment. It's very known and they measure it economically, the, the, the idea of inventory distortion, you know, it's, it's overstocked, right? It's out of stock. It's the wrong products in the wrong places. Um, and to the extent that then, for the retailer to expand assortment or, you know, for the supplier, the flip side of that coin is to increase product penetration to go after that kind of economic inefficiency of matching supply demand. Um, that makes a lot of sense, but just throwing an endless amount of products at it, it also isn't, you know, the way to do that. It, it, it isn't, you know, you, you don't end up where you, where you would hope to, to be. Um, and you also introduce, you know, some potential, um, unintended consequences, you know, that's there, for, for, you know, years and years, decades and decades, you know, the research has shown that this idea of the paradox of choice for, for a consumer, right? Like in a lot of cases, you, you reduce the ability to match product supply to product demand when you have too much choice. And, and so I think our thought is like, Hey, you know, product penetration for the supplier, product assortment for the retailer, super big, important problems. Um, drop shifting as a strategy lets both sides expand that to some degree, but it doesn't have to be like this ultimate expansion to this, you know, infinite endless aisle. Um, and, and the companies that we see having a lot of success with dropshipping as a strategy, that's not how they think about it. They're still, you know, they're still highly curated. Um, they use dropshipping, um, you know, as partners on both sides to test so that they can decide and learn where is that demand matching up and, and then they can react to that. So I think that's the way we think it's, it's, yeah, you don't limit yourself as much, but it's not fair to phrase it and, and, and think of it as a, the limits are gone. Companies have to deal with all of these decisions to deal with what we call here supply chain impatience. So when you're implementing a drop shipping program, what is the cost, say, in time and opportunity for onboarding those trading partners? Yeah, that's a, that's a super big piece of this. Drop shipping is not just another fulfillment you know, strategy. It's a completely new way to think about doing business. And so there's new kinds of discussions that need to happen. You know, should we even do it? That's, that's one of the, the first pieces of that is, you know, we, we work together already in the wholesale world. What are we going to do about this dropship piece? Do we even want to do it? So, so there's a conversation that has to happen. 
between the two companies. That just needs to be there. Um, you know, where, where things that we help with and, and where we get involved, you know, is once that has turned into a, yes, we are going to do it, then you find that there's additional weeks, if not months of, of delay in trying to connect the dots around this virtualized world about sharing the data. Um, the data quantities have increased, you know, by hundreds or thousands of times as everything gets, you know, real-time inventory and, and orders are not in big POs, you know, they're, they're, they're broken out instead of one PO with 10,000 line items on it, you have 10,000 POs, right? And so, so, so that creates this entire challenge around how do we share information? How do we share data? How do we connect all of these operational and data and IT dots and actually make it work? And when that runs into the current environment of the supply chain that is quite antiquated in its technology and its business models, you end up with people saying it took me six months to onboard to you know to connect. And and I think that's it's it's important to realize the only way to change that and to make it more quick, which is super, super critical, is to have a different framework and to have a different approach and, and probably like a different solution that can, you know, can can cut through all that and approach it with with what needs to happen as its start point versus Oh, this is just the last thing that we're asking this this world based on 1970s thinking to 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 handle. So, if you're a retailer, what are the steps that you need to take to make sure that a product's ready to buy wholesale and then turn around and virtually present that to your consumers? Yeah. So on the retail side, you still need to set up the product, and and what we find is that there's usually two pieces of that. Um, there there's the there's the piece where a retailer and supplier need to share some information, you know, so that the retailer can buy the product wholesale and the supplier can fulfill it wholesale and the supplier can then get paid. There's some core information, this item setup. Um, and that's been there for, for a long time. You know, that's way pre-internet. The, the, the internet added in the need for then those companies um, to either partner or, or for the retailer to do a second piece of item setup, which is say, Hey, now, this product is not going to be in the hands of a consumer. You know, they, they can't they can't measure the heel height of their new shoes. They need the data for that versus I can just look in the mirror and see if the height looks good on me. And so you know, there's this other piece of item setup, which is this extended, you know, rich data that, that becomes the data that is the virtual representation of a physical product, you know, pictures and, and descriptions and et cetera, et cetera. So there's those two pieces. Um, and, you know, that's, that's been happening since the day, you know, the, the first piece has been there for decades. The second piece happened the day, you know, the e-commerce storefront showed up, um, you know, specific to drop shipping, those things take on a new nuance because the retailer never sees the product. And so, you know, both, both of those things you've increased again, the, the quantity of items that you need to go through those processes could potentially explode. Um, the second piece of that, that virtual data um, piece of it, the, the descriptive consumer type data, uh, is a whole other big challenge um, because the retailer doesn't even have it, you know, to, to touch and feel and see. So um, that that piece of, of it is, is like you've got to do that. That's why I think it aligns to this idea of less limited aisle because it's mm-hmm. not just like click a button and all of a sudden there's all these tens or, you know, hundreds or millions, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of products. You know, you still have to share the data, you know, for the B2B item setup piece, you know, for that extended attribute piece. Some, somehow that has to happen. And and so that it is not, you know, click a button and go. It, it, it creates, you know, a whole new set of challenges. So from those challenges to 
moving into one of the online marketplaces like Amazon? What are some considerations that businesses have to take into account to do that effectively? Yeah, so you know, with Amazon, um, you know, there, there, I guess there's the first the first piece of that is I, I think everybody needs to understand that you know whether you're a company who makes products, aka this, the brand or the supplier, or you're a company who sells products, the retailer. Working with Amazon is probably maybe like you know deciding whether you should you know do a deal with the devil and, and deciding whether <laughs> that deal is going to you know maybe give you some benefit but you still might lose your soul or whether you're just going to lose your soul and kind of shortcut to that point. And, and Amazon, an amazing company. I, I buy a ton of stuff there, but but everybody needs to understand. You know, their their stated mission is to like sell everything to everybody at the cheapest possible. Um, sure. And, and that's what they do. So, um, you know, maybe two pieces on that question on Amazon. If you're, if you're the retailer, um, you know, you're, you're primarily buying other people's products to resell, you know, punching that into an Amazon, uh, probably means that, that you are there with a lot of other people. You know, the product that you have isn't that unique because, you know, you've bought it from someone else and it can quickly, you know, put you in a spot where, um, again, everything being sold to everybody at the cheapest price, you know, you can start to compete over pennies, you know, to try to get, you know, to get the sell. And I think that's that's a challenge. I kind of feel like, you know, if you if you're a retailer buying other people's products, you may, maybe you should find a, a different unique proposition and not do that. Um, if you're the manufacturer or you're the brand, it's kind of the reverse of that is if you have retailers who are doing that first piece and selling on Amazon. You should know that there's going to be naturally pressure to decrease um, your pricing um, and, and to push on that. And, and for a lot of brands, that's that's super important. Um, you know, the difference between Toyota and you know a Lexus, right? It's made in the same factory. You know, maybe some features, but it's you know it's the L on the front, right? And so um, a lot of price is perception from the consumer and the ability for companies to hold those perceptions and to hold that line. And so if you are the manufacturer and other people are selling your products on a marketplace that becomes super focused on, you know, kind of commoditization because it's all the same products from multiple sources and it, and it pushes on the price a lot, that can be a negative for you. And I, I think if you're, if, if I were a brand or, or a supplier, you know, making my own products, I would either uh, embrace Amazon as an important piece of, of demand in today's world, which is true, and then sell their direct and then do everything in my power to not allow anyone else to do that. And I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of cases is the brands are trying to take over those channels so that they do not have, um, you know, that, that same downward pressure um, to commoditize their products and to push on price. Um, I think that's that's a trend that we're seeing. So, but, but, and, and then the last thing I'll say on Amazon is everybody needs to understand that they're watching everything on both sides. Um, you know, whether you sell to them wholesale or whether you, you know, on your third-party marketplace as a retailer or a supplier, and they take that data, and you know, they have 20-plus private label brands. You, know, you, you wonder how much information did Amazon have uh, from companies like Logitech, you know, with keyboards and mice. Um, but you know, the the number one seller on Amazon of keyboards and mice is Amazon, you know, Basics. And so, you know, they're, they're using that data to create their own brands and then put them, you know, into, into the system. Um, and it's super, super, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of information. It's a, it's a, you know, they're a software company and, and a supply chain company that has a stated objective to sell everything to everybody at the cheapest price possible. So, again, back to the whole devil comment is if you're going to work with it, you kind of need to recognize it for what it is and make sure that it, it, it aligns, you know, over the next year, two, five, 10, 15 with, with what you are as a company because there's a lot of moving pieces that sure starts to make Amazon look like your primary competitor versus, you know, someone that you, you know, work with as a partner. That was a lot of great information. Jeremy Hanks, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, sharing some of your insights. Yeah, happy to, happy to chat, and hopefully um, some of these thoughts have been helpful. Inbound Logistics Magazine is the information leader in supply chain and logistics management. Start your free print and digital subscription today by visiting bit.ly slash getil. That's bit.ly slash get underscore il and stay ahead of the 3PL game. The Inbound Logistics Podcast is a production of Inbound Logistics Magazine. For the most in-depth information around logistics, transportation, and supply chain practices, get your free print and digital subscription at inboundlogistics.com slash subscribe. Connect with us via LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for the most current developments in the industry. All of these links will be available in the show notes. If you'd like to leave us some feedback or have a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode, leave us an email at podcast at inboundlogistics.com. I'm your host, Jeff Vita. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time here on the Inbound Logistics Podcast. Thank you.